Welcome to this week's episode of Grow or Die. My name is Alora Chestikoff, and I am from Firebird Summit. My partner in this podcast is Lawrence Henderson from Boss LLC. Every week we meet and discuss coaching topics relative to professional development, personal development, business, and entrepreneurship. Join us and see if there's anything else you'd like to add to the conversation. Wow. Hello, hello, and welcome back to season two of Grow or Die. I am hey, 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 I'm so happy to see you. Oh, How- my God. I am so excited to be back with you, Alora. I am Lawrence Henderson from Boss. You know how this is about to go down. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, my God. So, you know, our, we took a break after we, we were done season one and it ended up being a little longer than we'd planned partially because I had to pick up and move across country again. <laughs> uh, sadly my, my addiction to doing things the hard way never seems to be truly sated so in any event I am now uh, reasonably well ensconced in western Colorado. Um, you know as a west coast girl born and raised there's a certain amount of hey this is kind of familiar um, I've actually decided that Colorado is kind of this interesting hybrid of California and Texas, which are the okay. two places we spent the most time. So it's got like, it's got the, the Mexican food assortment that I want. It's yeah. got the amazing microbrewery assortment that oh. I totally underestimated. That one I didn't see coming. Uh, good food. The climate isn't, it's certainly not Miami, but it hasn't been terrible so far. So we'll see how the winter goes. But yeah. Getting the hang of things. I did have to trade in my convertible for an SUV. I, I seen the four by four. <laughs> <laughs> Which I have to say, both my, both, like even my dad was like, uh, really? And I was like, well, I gotta say, hauling a muddy, wet dog in and out of the back seat of a sports car was starting to get kind of old. That's <laughs> hilarious. So, yeah, so the move has happened. Okay. You've had some cool stuff too. I have for- some real good stuff too. <laughs> Dude. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So uh, again, one of my one of my mentors. Um, I am helping. I thought I was just helping out as a teaching assistant at, at Morehouse College, and in their leadership and professional development class. And it's morphing into some other things. So details are coming um, once things are solidified. But exciting times in in the Henderson household. That is awesome. I'm so happy for you. That's so great. And oh, I I can't. I, that's so cool. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, ready, ready to get back. All right. Let's do the mystery box. Okay. So um, it was very interesting. I, um, you know, I, I have been working with a client and I was listening to a conversation with some partners that they were having and this conversation evolved where a couple people started talking about how they were both answering email at 11 o'clock at night on a Sunday. And it was one of these kind of out of body experience moments that I had where I thought to myself, wow, there was a time when not only did I do that, but I was really proud of the fact that I did that. And my identity was very baked into the fact that I was the person who always responded even at 11 o'clock on a Sunday night. And as I was listening to it, the other part of my brain just said, screw that noise, man. I ain't doing that anymore. And then so I, I, I kind of, I sat there in this weird kind of like argument going on in my brain between 
but you used to be the person who was very attached to being that responsive to your clients and doing that. And then the other part of my brain that said, yeah, but you uh, are older now and you know better and you have a family and you have other obligations. Like that's, that's like BS, like don't do that anymore. And so what I found myself in was this very interesting debate about what happens when your priorities in life change and they bump up against the identity you always had about yourself, right? I always prided myself on being a workaholic, on being the first one in and the last one out, the one that my staff, there was never anybody who worked for me who felt like they worked harder than I did ever. And that always came up for me. And that was a source of so much pride. And now I'm like, what the hell is wrong with me? I'm not like, that's, that's not it anymore. Like, I, And so, but the thing is, is that that identity piece, right? That recognizing that that's who I am. That's what I'm known for, right? That's what people would come to me with disasters and fires that needed to be fixed was because they knew I would work longer and harder than anybody else to get things on track. And so for me, what's been really interesting, and this move has kind of highlighted a lot of it. I mean, the last year generally has highlighted, but this move has really crystallized it because now I'm, you know, I'm living with someone. This is not just, you know, if I stay working until eight o'clock at night, there's other people in this house that are missing my presence, which I haven't had that in a very, very long time. And so this whole idea of like, how do we, how do we redefine ourselves for ourselves when our priorities change? So I want to toss that one out there and let you uh, weigh in. Doggy. So when, when I think about that, what's really coming up for me is um, kind of a high level accountability, but kind of a subset is what are we seeing as priority and the, how we define those things. Because for you, those were truths for you that, you know what, you had created this identity, you had created um, this kind of rhythm um, and people came to expect that. People came to love that about you um, because it was probably, probably tagline was a, Alora is Ms. Get It Done. Um, and that's what they came to you for. But in this season, me and you have talked about this extensively about in this season, what is really more us has been coming up more and more. You talked about family. And really what that uh, says to me is I am now prioritizing my love of peace and defined as I get to unplug when I want to. And so for me, unplugging has now become a priority. And I, this week, have been identified. My wife busted me out. Just like you, you know what? Somebody's waiting on me. She busted me out. She was like, when are you unplugging? She was like, I know. And she says, you are violating your values because one of your values is excellence. You're tired. You need to unplug. And so I had to take a look at what was I prioritizing? as more important than time with her, more important than rest, more important than um, just recharging and just getting away from it all, what was I putting in its place? And I think once we really think about all of that, because again, in my mind, I could, I could say I was working on good work. And, but really when I look back at it, I was like, at the time you were doing it, it actually was busy work. Yeah. And you could have been spending 
quality time with the people who care about you. And so I am now prioritizing peace, um, prioritizing love, prioritizing those things that are all subsets of my values. Um, and I have to do check-ins. I have to be accountable to people to help me with it. Because like you said, it'll be 11 o'clock at night and I'm still working on stuff. I'm still answering emails that I could have answered at 3 p.m., but I was working on something else during that time. Or that you can answer tomorrow, right? Or like, wake up and answer. Yeah, right. it, it's going to be there. Right. Why do I need to clear my email box at midnight? Right. Right. So when, when you think about your move, kind of, and I know some things as you were driving across country, listening to the audio books, <laughs> singing the songs. Watching the, do watching the dog sleep. Watching. <laughs> what, what things came up for you as, as you were just kind of going along? So this is actually interesting because one of the identity shifts for me that I struggle, I struggle with the most is that I have always seen myself as a single person. I, I'm very like oriented that I'm a snail. I travel around with my home on my back. I can go wherever I want. Like, and so, you know, now that I'm in a relationship with somebody who doesn't like to pick up and move every <laughs> few months, you know, and as far as he's concerned, like we could just stay here until we die, which is like such a terrifying thought to me. It's not even funny. Um, but what I kept thinking of on the drive is, okay, like we're moving here because the goal is for us to be a family, right? Like that's, that's the point. I didn't do a very good job of that last time I made like a legitimate attempt and I've spent the time in between largely just avoiding all of that. Um, and I think the thing that I kept thinking of more than anything else is that there, there are days when he's like, oh my God, I can't believe I dragged you out of Miami. And I'm like, well, first of all, can drag me out of Miami. <laughs> Miami wasn't really working out the way I had envisioned, thanks to COVID in many ways. But, you know, like I was good to go. Like this wasn't, you didn't twist my arm. There was no, I came here because I wanted something. And I think the challenge that I keep coming back to is that my identity as a single person has gotten in the way of me being able to articulate what does Alora's family of choice look like? Right. I know what my family of origin looks like, and I'm super close to my dad. Like that's that's very easy. And I have a very strong sort of set of identities around my family of origin. I have way less clarity about my family of choice. And that to me has been a very difficult thing to start articulating and defining. And because I'm sort of fundamentally a contrarian, anything that sounds too traditional makes me kind of like cringe. And I'm like, oh, no, no, I don't do that. I don't do that. But on the other hand, you know what, like he's my family and he's the first person probably in my life that I've been like, no, 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 like this is, this is my family. And uh, even when, you know, we make each other bonkers or what, like all the normal stuff, right? That everybody at the age of like 25 is like figured out, takes me another two decades to get my head around. But I think the challenge that I keep coming back to is what do I want a family to look like, right? I'm coming into this at 45, he's almost 50. You know, we're, this isn't about like having kids, having and raising kids. Cause that, that was like, you know, two decades ago, that's gone. So in a, in a sort of like middle-aged definition where we're both kind of on like our second or third incarnation, depending on how you want to count it, 
what does that mean? And I honestly still don't know, but to me, it's a very interesting question. And in a world where there are so many people who are divorced and who go and get remarried, where you're not going to have kids, like you don't, you don't fit the traditional definition of a family of somebody who, you know, may, might get married at 25 and have kids. And like, that's a very clearly set of defined paths. But if you don't fit in those paths, which I never did then, and I sure as hell don't now, what does that mean? And how do you define what that looks like? What and what is success or what is victory or what is worth celebrating? And, and it's really confusing as hell because all the definitions of, you know, a, a white wedding dress by the time you're 25, like that's like bullshit that I never wanted even then. But it's, I mean, I'm 45. Eventually, I have no doubt this guy and I are going to get married. That's the plan. We're going to get married. Am I going to wear a white wedding dress? That just seems dumb to me now. Like I wouldn't even, like, I don't even know what to do with that. But what does it look like? What, like, if you do this at 45 for the second time, both of us have been married and divorced, didn't go well the first go around, yeah. do it again. But like that definition and what, it, what am I in that role and what do I want it to be and what fits for us, right? Like I'm, I am fundamentally a business person by nature, right? I'm not going to mm -hmm. stay home and bake. Like that doesn't even, yeah. I don't even know what the hell I would do. I'd probably burn the house down. So like all of these things create these like set of identity questions that yeah. I don't any of them look like for me. Yeah. It, it's, um, it's funny. Uh, and I love the way you phrase that. Um, what does my family of choice look like? And it goes to um, the old, fundamental structure of you know blood relatives and you need to be super close to them and i would say in this season um i've gotten closer to non-blood relatives than i have um who I, I shared a home with growing up and and it's not that i don't love them any less it's just that who's in our village is in our village and we've come to accept that. We've come to love that about the people that are in our circle. Um, but then it, it goes back to when I really evaluate and I do this awareness exercise um, with groups now uh, that I was so grateful that I was introduced to it, particularly from an inclusion standpoint, was it was just a question around, write down a list and it was 10 people that you trust. Just a simple list, it was a trope. Who are the top 10 people you trust? And in this exercise, um, now I don't know if I've told you this since I did this. Ooh. No, I haven't explained this exercise before. Because my first thought is, wow, 10 people that you truly trust. That's a long, that, that's, that's long. That's, that's a list, right? That's a long list to some. But what was more intriguing to me is who made my list. Yeah. And so the columns, you literally begin to separate. Column one, race slash ethnicity of that person. The next one, age slash generation. Next one, gender. Last one, disability, yes or no. Life challenge, yes or no. And I started looking at my list, just looking at the males, right, right at top two, wife, baby brother, right at top two. Then I started going and I was split down a bit on female, but what intrigued me is who I picked as my females. And I had in race, all males 
were black males close to me. I trust. I've been vulnerable before with shit, shed a thug tear or two. But the females, my wife, her baby sister, but then I had a new contact just met in May, Ginger Johnson, Julia Armet, and Alora Chestikoff. And and you I got had a bunch of white women outside of your family. You got a bunch of white women on that list. How did that I, happen? The word trust. Hmm. In you three, I've released things to you. And I had no fear that judgment would come back towards me. A, and, I'm honored and very grateful. That is so sweet. And I am very profoundly yeah. moved for, by that. Yeah. I'm curious if you've had any epiphanies about. So, again, yeah. Your wife and her sister. Yep. The only two black women on that list. Yeah. And then the non-family women on that list were all white. Did you have any epiphanies about that? Yeah. Okay, do tell. There's an associated level of, you all have treated me like peers and equals, faster than anybody I've ever encountered. Okay. And because we've, come in that way as looking eye to eye and there's been this shared respect that I've been able to release to you mm -hmm. at that professional and personal level. And when I think about just even my sisters, it's always, I feel like they look at me and they see little version of me and that's how they talk to me. Mm -hmm. And it's always, Hey, I heard you're doing this. Congratulations. Uh, Congratulations. Oh, and that's what I hear where you all and my wife and her sister, it's, we have this banter mm -hmm. and it's very equal. And I was telling this to one of my buddies who's, who's a white guy um, and two white guys, they were 11 and 12. If I had, if I had to extend the list, they were 11 and 12. And I told him, I said, the way you make it into my top 10 is, has nothing to do with you. I just haven't released enough to you for me to feel comfortable enough to put you in my top 10. That raises a question for me though. Like, yeah. So this, this, and again, this is, I you know, family of choice. Well, and back to Brene Brown's concept of trust, yep. right? Give yep. a little, get a little, yep. and it's a, it's not, it's not an all or nothing. Exactly. So to your point, for those two guys, yep. you haven't had the chance to release enough yet to yep. start trusting them that much. Is there something you feel like they could do to make you more inclined to do that and to be more willing to step out on that ledge? Yeah. I one is Jason, another one's but my buddy Randy. And when I say it, it's on me, they are who they are. But behind my ear, my left ear in particular, is all the other white men that have made me try to measure up and put me in a box and scolded me for it. And so I, they're there with me. Like, even though I've, I've said things to them and, and, it, and it's almost like bait, right? Like you just cast stuff out and see what somebody does with it. 
and totally unfair to them and they don't know they're being set up um but they've done they've done right by it and and we have this respectful banter but that thing that those those voices behind my left ear the the coaches from high school the early leaders in the army like that are that tried to sabotage me like all of the and and they were white men and i'm and so all that stuff that that head cheese comes with it the gremlin comes with it and and so i have to do that work but to your point i could release that to them and tell them what i what i want and what i desire out of a relationship okay so just to be clear yeah. it sounds like it sounds like your trepidation isn't about them Mm-mm. personally the two Mm-mm. of them personally no. are not having done it uncomfortable not at all it's just getting past the hurdle of history yeah perfect perfectly said it's so funny that you mentioned that so i had so you know working in technology yep utterly common that I am only woman in any given conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially when I was in executive roles in, you know, like I have pictures of me with like my, my peer group and they're all men. <laughs> in fact, at my last full-time job, my boss was a guy, all my peers were men and all my managers under me were men. So like, I was just wow. like, so 360 degrees, loved all of them. They were amazing. And, and especially some of them in particular were really phenomenal. Like just, yeah. um, it's for me so like if that wasn't a thing but what the reason i mention it is because i've kind of gotten <clears throat> in many respects i've gotten sort of um to the point of taking for granted that i'm surrounded by good guys and last week i was on a call with a, a partner of a client and uh this guy was talking to me like i was a secretary he was an old white guy and he was things the conversation was getting technical and he kept rephrasing a question in a way that clearly indicated he thought I was too dumb to understand the last time he had said it. And so in this 30 minute conversation, I felt like I felt my blood pressure climbing and I could tell, I'm like, you know, it's a video call because that's all I do these days. (laughs) And so I'm watching my face and I'm really careful like to try to keep it together so I don't like pop off at this guy. And less than, I don't know, three hours after we get off the call, he emails my male colleague at this client and says, hey, had a conversation with Alora. Um, would really like to have a conversation with you to understand this a little bit better, maybe get more technical details. Now, mind you, this guy that I work with, awesome guy, he's also not the most technical person in the world. So he messages me, it's a Friday evening, messages me and says, um, I'm gonna forward you this email, like what the hell? <laughs> like." I'm not your dad. By the way, he's also gay, which makes it even funnier that like he was like the acceptable masculine stereotype that the guy, the old white guy didn't want to talk to me. And so uh, eventually, of course, because my my colleague thought it was funny, he's like, I'm just going to kick him back to you. And so he responded back to the guy and CC'd me on the email and said, you know, Laura's actually a lot more technical than me and she's running this whole thing. So you should really talk to her. There's nothing really I can add. But in that whole moment, like that, that spawned this series of conversations, by the way, all with other white men, because that's who I work with. And all of them was, all of them came back to the idea that we, and I know, I know from a racial perspective, it's, it's very similar, but as a woman, I have to be very careful 
when I ring the sexes bell. And because I kind of have thick skin, I'm pretty good about not taking too much shit personally. I've been doing this for a really long time. And on a pure intellectual level, I'm not like intimidated by many people. So like they, when they start trying to like swing their intellectual dick, they don't really piss me off that much or they don't really offend me that much. Mostly I just kind of laugh at them and make Napoleon jokes. At, at the end of the day though, occasionally there are a few that get under my skin. And so, you know, but, I, but I'm very careful about calling that out. What was really interesting was the fact that this guy did this and he did talk to me like I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. Um, this conversation came up with a few different people, all white guys. And all three of them, interestingly, from three different generations, actually, now that I think about it, which I hadn't before. And all three of them were like, wow, who the hell is this guy? Like, first of all, doesn't he know you're making the buying decision here? So like, why is he pissing you off? That doesn't sound like a logical choice. But what the hell kind of world does he think we live in? And I was thinking about that as I'm, you know, watching Trump bitch about Black Lives, Matter, Black Lives Matter protests and stuff, and thinking about sort of this way that we get indoctrinated into being overly careful about not crying wolf, right? We, we, so we don't say stuff and we don't call it out. And so when I'm listening to you talk about the relationship you have with these two guys and you needing to get over the hurdle of history to be able to trust them enough, part of me wonders like, what, what does that really take? Because there are plenty all of us, especially those of us who've been the only one of whatever in an environment enough, we all walk around with this baggage of I was dismissed or I was discounted or I was undercut or I was talked down to or disrespected and, and all of it's totally valid. And it happens often enough, it's gets, it's, it becomes part of the armor we build, but it's also not fair to the individuals that yeah. we meet, that we wanna have a relationship with. Sure. So, how do we do that? How do you? Yeah. So I think, I think it's, it's, um, <laughs> and I hate to, I hate to bring it up this, this analogy, but the connection of navigating through the stages of grief, um, if you will, relationally. And, and, and just one of the last things I said was they need to know. And I'm huge on when leaders are making decisions about their people what information are they using to make those decisions? Is it something that they've done and created in this vacuum, in this bubble, or are they working with um, information that was gathered by everybody together in a group, right? Um, and it's kind of like, again, you talking to those three gentlemen representing different generations, but all of them knowing you and having data on you and your, the, the identity of you and what you bring to the table and their reaction was on spot on with them understanding your true character, your true intent of every word that comes out of your mouth. And I can't assume that they know what I've been through without telling them. And so I have to get courageous enough to say, hey, this is where I feel like this two-way uh, street is, is flowing. And this is my desire. I really feel like you're, I want you to be one of my guys that I can call the drop of a hat and I got your back. Like, I want to have your back. 
I want to take bullets for you. Like I want, like I want to go hard for you. And that, that's just the way I process information. Um, it, it's, it's all combat scenarios for me, which scares people. Um, but it's, it's like your wife. It's like your wife saying that you friend hard. I friend hard, and and I stop great, apologizing. Right, but it's a fairly combative kind of oh, way sure. of looking at it, which oh, is sure. awesome, and I love it. But that's yeah. exactly what you're just describing. That's what I'm describing, and. When I, what I got from that and even meditating on her saying that to me, it was the part that was destructive is that I was friending that way and they didn't know. And so they didn't know my expectation of what I, I was requesting back non-verbally. And so when they didn't even meet my non-verbals, I was like, you should have picked up on that. But as I began to really evaluate and particularly these two men, um, one has been a coaching peer and I've have released some things to him, but it's one of those things about the level of intentionality in which we grow this relationship. And I know I'm going to have to extend myself even more so because I know the type of baggage that I have that I'm, I now want to cut the string on and I want to leave that stuff with who it deserves to be left with. And so I don't, like you said, drag this into a relationship that it is told they want to build it on good intent. But if I keep bringing that stuff with them, I'm actually unconsciously and in some sense, unconsciously um, looking out for them to harm me or say something that I get offended by. So I can in my head go, I told you so. Oh my God. You just hit on like three different things in my head. <laughs> so it's so funny. So, I don't think it's just a friend thing, right? I know, so dating is, and I think it's really interesting. So I, I end up talking to a lot of women in their forties who, who are, who are dating. And I had two times in the last couple of years where I fell into this cliche where I met somebody and I was very, like, I was, I was disproportionately interested in him. Um, and his level of interest in me was nowhere near as much. And like, I had that, like, screw you asshole kind of response when he wasn't giving me that back. But we never had that conversation, right? I never said, hey, look, I don't know why, but I am way more interested in or attracted to you than I can explain. Like it's, it's kind of weird me out a little bit, but like I didn't have that conversation with them. So I didn't, I didn't level set on that front, right? I didn't, I didn't give them the chance to say, wow, that's really sweet, Laura, but I'm really not that interested. Um, because I kept kind of hoping that eventually like it would, it would like shift into gear, right? It's like they're, I was like, okay, well, we just, this third gear is here somewhere. We just keep fighting it. Eventually we'll find it. Yeah, no, no, no. like it's a stupid ass <laughs> handling it. Like, because then the only other thing you do is exactly what you just described, which is, okay, great. I've been burned the last few times. So now I'm just on the lookout for who's going to burn me next. Come on. Let me, let me see it. Let me see it. You know, and it's, it's just so funny because, you know, there is uh, I just had this conversation about the fact that people who are so terrified of being screwed, they will usually go out of their way to screw somebody else first, just to preempt it, just to prove that there's, this is why I knew I couldn't trust you. They just, at that point, they just sort of dig into being right and being justified that they'll go out of their way to set up a situation where like circumstances screw them, even if the other person never made a choice to do that. And it's so easy to explain why you're a victim 
when you're in that situation or when you start creating those situations. And I think it's really hard to step back and say, hmm, I kind of set that guy up. Like he didn't, you know, all things being equal, would he have like actually like screwed me over? I I, I don't know, but I kind of put him on a one-way road where there was nothing else that he could have probably done that was reasonable. And I think you, I think it's very hard to recognize when you've become so defensive that you unconsciously set this kind of scenario up. So how do you start, how do you start chiseling it away when you realize that like, wow, I, I'm probably just throwing gasoline on this fire and then blaming the other guy for raging out of control. Yeah. And I I think that it is the way you begin to start chipping away at a lot of this stuff. um, And again, it's, um, kind of one piece at a time. Um, and for me, it's really identifying things that I feel totally uh, violated. Like what types of scenarios, what types of situations do I feel like there's no coming back from and then kind of work my way back from the, the most um, tumultuous or I have a traumatic um, events that have happened and, and really break down kind of the roles of everybody in them. And because again, it's very dramatic to to go all the way there with every one of these relationships. And to your point, um, it's not fair. Um, It's not fair to them, particularly when, again, I've already assessed good intent. I've already assessed that. and, And crazy enough, I have evidence that it's good intent. And even more so of how can we even work together? like make money together, like, and build out a relationship. And so it's like, I I already have that data and I'm still, but it's the next step. I have to tell them, like I have to, and tell them where it's coming from and, and request the, the grace early um, because I'm working through stuff. And, and again, and hope that in hopes they respond the same way you did. And, the others that I are in my top 10, where they say, hey, nah, you're allowed to feel your feels and you're allowed to feel however you feel about them. Just know that I'm here. You, you're not scaring me away. So did either one of those two guys say anything that surprised you? Uh, only that they got the shoulders for it and release it as quickly as I feel comfortable with. And that was huge. Do you have an idea what it'll take for you to feel comfortable? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, Jumping off the ledge like I normally do. Cause I I don't, I don't think, I can't recall. I don't think I ever held back from you. Did I ever hold back? I don't think so. I hope not. No, I didn't. And I think that, yeah, I think, yeah, I think everybody's at some point seen one of my thug tears. And yeah, I think that's it. I just gotta go. I just gotta go and and let people know it's coming mm-hmm. and let you decide. And be okay with the decision. And so 
yeah, I think that's how my 10 became my 10. So yeah, that's, that's what I've left to do. I think you also just said something that's really, in some cases, the hardest part, which is you have to be able to be okay, mm -hmm. whatever their decision. Mm -hmm. That part yeah. is so hard. I think it's very easy for us to say that before mm -hmm. it happens. Um, partially, especially if we're fairly optimistic by nature, because we just oh, assume, sure. oh, it'll, sure. it'll work out fine. And then <laughs> if it doesn't, I think it can be really, really hard to be like, wow, I wasn't expecting that. I just bare my soul to you. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that, and again, that's a hard part. I don't know if there's any great prep you can do because when it comes down to it, you're back to not something you can control. But at all. But I think I think maybe the first piece is really recognizing that you can't control it. Like yeah. there's not, if somebody really isn't going to be okay, it's not because you use this word choice or that word choice or because you, you know, did cry or didn't cry. Mm -hmm. Like there are so many, I think, I think we second guess yep. how we handle, handle a moment yep. if the outcome is not what we want. Yep. And I think we over, I think a lot of times we overanalyze what we did and what we could have done differently. Yep. At the end of the day, it's super important to remember it probably wasn't a matter of a couple of words. I mean, unless you, unless you flew off the handle at someone and really just like mm -hmm. went for their eyes, like there, it, it really probably wasn't that. Either oh, sure. they were okay with you being vulnerable and emotional and mm -hmm. having whatever your reaction was, or they weren't. Yep. And, and there probably was, and I, again, back to the dating scenario, I see a lot of women who, you know, think they're having this great relationship and this guy suddenly bolts and they're like, well, what do I do? What could I have done differently? It's like, you, know, you probably couldn't have done anything really differently. He yeah. was probably always going to bolt. Like that was not, and I, I think we put maybe too much pressure on ourselves. Definitely. To handle a, a hard moment perfectly, mm -hmm. um, which I think is, is super unfair to us. But I think it's also really unfair to somebody else because then you're, I mean, because then I think the judgment is more acute, right? It's like, yeah. why mad at me because I use, you know, this phrase or I didn't describe it this way, or you felt like I was, a, it's like, you know what? They just weren't there. They just, yeah. they just weren't ready for that. Or they weren't capable of, of being present for that. Yeah. So you're back to, you know, what we talk about <laughs> Brene Brown's work before, right? Which is what if you just decide to believe that people are doing the best they can? And their, and their best may not be what you need. Yeah. Man. I know that's, there's something about that that's such a hard thought. Oh, to man. Because I think the natural inclination is like, and immediately what popped in my head, why are they trying their hardest? Right? But that going back to judging, and going back to that statement, like, if they said this is the best they can do, leave it there. Which, and for people like us, who self-proclaim high performer. Well, and go all out, right? Like, we I'll don't, go all out. Neither one of us. We are not half-assed about mm -mm. No. Yeah. That's a, man. That's a whole season in and of itself 
of helping release people from that. Well, and, you know, again, one of the things I like about looking at it that way, Mm -hmm. you can also choose to believe that or choose not to believe that. And and we're back to how much, what can I control and what do I, what can I not, right? You can't control if they can pony up emotionally or in other ways or whatever. But I can choose to say, you know what, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. that that my faith, I'm going to assume my faith in you is not wasted. I'm yep. going to assume that you have every best intention in the world. And I'm going mm-hmm. to assume that you are going to do whatever is in your power to show up and be present for me mm-hmm. and the relationship that we're trying to develop. If it turns out that your yard line, your, your end, your end zone and my end zone are not in the same place. Then I, then part of that choice for me is making the choice somewhat in advance of, I'm not going to judge you for it. And I'm going to hold myself accountable to not judging you for it. Even if I'm hurt, even if I'm disappointed, because A, it doesn't serve either one of us. There you go. B, it's not I want to be. And C, when I think about what I would like to get from other people, I would like to be given the benefit of the doubt, right? This is a, such a golden rule kind of thing. Yep. I, I would like to get that same assumption of intent from someone else. So I don't think it's fair to ask the universe to give that to me if I'm not willing to give it to somebody else or everybody else or as many other somebody else's as I can manage. And some are harder than others. I'm not, yeah, I'd never deny that. But, but at the end of the day, I think it's such so much more, I find it so much more empowering yeah. than just being angry that other people aren't delivered. Yeah. And, and it, and it also to frees up headspace when, <laughs> when you just let it happen. Um, and, but, but I think the biggest part of it is when we begin to be comfortable with, verbalizing and communicating what we desire from people that are going to encounter us to get back to that original point of what does my family of choice look like? And those who are supposed to stick around, stick around. And those who choose to go, we have to be okay with them choosing to go. And and I think it's also to that point, right? Not everybody is meant to be in your life permanently. Not at all. I say reason, seasons, lifetimes. Right. And they're, they're, they're <laughs> come and go. Yeah. And they went because they did what they needed to. And, and again, like this comes back to our conversation yeah. last season about grace and you yeah. having, you having a much more religious and spiritual. Yeah. You. But at the end of the day, I totally believe that I can either find a lesson yep. that useful or it was a waste yeah and i'm not a fan of waste so when it comes down to it i assume that there is a lesson that i can learn and if i find one it's because i didn't look hard enough there you go no i absolutely love it man what a way to kick it off i know and i'm so happy to see you (laughs) oh my god i'm so excited for your for your new stuff oh my gosh i'm excited about your stuff and and again that the awesome blue behind you Blue wall is awesome. I have to move. I have to. I have to move around the house because yeah. it's been like awesome painting. Like the color in here is pretty freaking awesome. Now you you do paint, right? You know I don't paint so much anymore. So okay. actually, painting kind of behind me there. That one okay. was 
That one was one of mine, but it's really the only painting I've done really pretty much in the last 15 years. Okay. I have one more painting that I did do, but like 20 years ago. Yeah. It's uh, a friend is actually shipping me from, from Texas so I can hang it downstairs in my dining room. That's but awesome. Of my art collection around here, those are the only two that I really did. Okay. But my fiance, he actually paints houses, houses. So this was, oh, you know. All the color on the walls was him and and it was really funny because when you know i picked some colors that yeah obviously i like color but like downstairs which we'll see another time yeah, um, yeah. i picked some like you know one well a couple walls are red pretty much the color of your shirt yeah um a couple others are this like uh, really intense gold and it was really hilarious to watch the guys who were doing the work including my fiance paint this color and think oh my god this is horrible what is she thinking she's got to be loaded of her mind and all of them tried to talk me out of it. All of them were like, this is, this is a lot. Are you sure? Now that my artwork, now that the, the art collection that I've collected over yep. the years, traveling the globe, now that it's hanging on the wall, all of them walk in there and they're like, damn, you know what you were talking about? That totally works. But it's That's very awesome. dramatic. It's extremely yeah. cool. And I've definitely been enjoying it. So I'm getting settled in. Good. Not quite there yet, but it's coming. But yeah, I'm, I'm actually really happy to be in Colorado. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Oh, uh, going to be awesome. Absolutely. And we are back to season two. So I will talk to you next week, my pal. All right. Have a great one. Thank you for joining me and Lawrence in this week's episode of Grow or Die. Join us next week when we'll take on our next topic. In the meantime, have a fantastic week.